Today's sermon text is Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, marriage is a, uh, it's a gift of God, no doubt, and yet it is extremely uh, difficult and challenging. You know, you get into marriage and you have certain expectations uh, that often don't line up with the experiences that we have. We have expectations of, of community, of love, of unity, of transparency, and they're often met with uh, the experience of hardship, conflict, disagreement, anger. Um, one, one author kind of made it analogous to the difference between you. You have a 500-piece crossword puzzle, and you see the picture on the box, and it's pristine, it's clear, it's right. Then you open the box, and you put the pieces out, and they're all scattered. They're disconnected from one another. It's hard to get them together. It's kind of like the, the, you know, the expectations we have going into marriage, and yet the, the difficulty of the experience. You know, it's kind of ironic, too, when you think about it, uh, that so much in life we've seen this great progression, advancement in knowledge and truth. You know, we think about technology, we think about communication, we think about education, we think about medicine. We've made all these advances, and yet when it comes to marriage, we still struggle with the same things that they've always struggled with. There's been no involvement. There's been no development. As we're going to go through these beginning chapters of Genesis, we just come along and find all these same marital struggles that, that we may have in life, we see in the pages of Scripture. Now, I recognize that among many of us, some of our marriages are flourishing, and praise God for that. Others are languishing, and I grieve over that. I know some of you are here, and you want to be married, and you're not, or you have been married, and you're suffering the loneliness of being, of being without a spouse, and and you're inwardly kind of groaning at this kind of sermon on marriage, let me remind you, the scripture applies to all of us. And there is a clear place for you in this sermon as well. You know, I, I've been going through trying to reorient you to looking at Genesis differently. Uh, Genesis, we often think these beginning chapters, it's like, it's like God sits down with Moses and says, okay, this is, this is what happened in those first few days when you weren't here. No, Moses is writing a sermon. He's preaching to a people who have come out of enslavement and subjugation. 
Uh, These these Israelites had been bathing in a sea of paganism with the Egyptian gods, the Egyptian way of life, and he's introducing God to them. This is who your God is, and, and this is what he's designed things to be. This is how creation is to be. This is how humanity and marriage is to be. He's trying to help us understand, if God is so good, then why are we struggling like we are? And he's leading us back to God to move us from the effects of the fall into greater and greater sanctification. So he's showing us these things to help lead us back to the way things are. All preparing us for one to come that will help us do this. So when we look at this passage in Genesis, I want you to think, this is a blueprint. Moses already knows the fall came. He already knows that what he's laying out, he's not teasing us like, oh, don't you wish you could have this? He's showing us what was and what is to be. So he's not just giving us a blueprint for how our marriages ought to be, but he's showing us what all relationships with God ought to be. He's going to use marriage as a paradigm regarding how we relate to God. All of our marriages are temporal. All of our marriages are going to end in death. But he's using it as a window through which to see God. This is why it applies to all of us here. So let's look at four characteristics of marriage, and through this we're going to see how we ought to be with God himself. So first, you see that marriage is to be a companionship. Look with me, jump right to 18, where he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, this ought to just kind of shock us a little bit because we've had this sevenfold pattern of it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, but now it's not good. What's not good? Well, it's not good that man is alone. That Hebrew word for alone isn't simply a lack of something. It's a substantial deficiency. The man is inadequate alone. This isn't man waking up and saying, gee, I need a spouse. I really want to have somebody to partner life. No, no, this is God rendering his judgment. It's not good that he's alone. It's God's statement. Now, this should make sense to us, right? Because all of creation, we've already seen, everything God creates needs something to complete it. So you have the first three days in creation, he makes the sky, he makes the sea, he makes the earth. And then on those fourth and fifth and sixth days, he fills the sky, he fills the sea, he he fills the earth. That's the way God makes things. And so here when it comes to man, he has no one to complete him. He needs a community. You think about when he brings all the animals. He's not, he is bringing the animals to Adam so that Adam can name them, which is showing Adam's rule over creation. But it's also showing his inadequacy apart from being completed. He sees the animals parade two by two, going past him, and he finds there's no one fit for him. And listen, a dog may be your best friend, maybe man's best friend. It's not your best helper. It's not fit for you. The dog isn't fit for you. And so God, in his kindness and provision, creates a woman for the man. And he he takes the rib from the man. He takes a rib from Adam. Now, those of you guys who are checking your ribs right now to see if you have one less than your female counterpart, you're not missing one. He took it from Adam, not his progeny, not those descendants. But he took the rib to display a mutuality 
that, he is, that the woman is going to have. And notice what it says. He took the rib and he built the woman. He built her. He fashioned her from Adam and for Adam. He built her. And, and he calls her a helper. Now, let me be clear on this. A, a helper is not inferior. It's not subordinate. It's not secondary. It's not somehow less than. In the 19 uses in the Old Testament, uh, helper is used 16 times for God. God bringing to bear for Israel what they could not do on their own. No, the, the woman being a helper is to complete so that the man now and the woman are able to do what God has called them to do, to fill and subdue the earth. There is, there is parity there. And notice that she's a helper fit for him. So to be fit for him, it is, that word to be fit is like an opposite counterpart, corresponding to the man, but different from the man. Has a power like the man, but different from the man. It would be like a right and a left hand. They're opposite, but they're the same. So, so in no way is helper fit for him to ever be seen as secondary subordinate. In fact, J.C. Raw, when he was preaching through the Gospel of Luke, he said, uh, they were not women who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They were not women who fled the garden when Jesus was arrested. They were not women who denied Christ three times in the high priest's house. They were women who uh, wailed and lamented all the way to the cross. They were women who remained at the cross to the very end, and they were women who were found first to go to the tomb and see the resurrected Lord. So when he says a helper fit, it's a, it's a strength opposite counterpart for companionship. So marriage is to be a companionship where there is equality. And let me just ask you, men, do you, do you see your wives as a companion? Do you see them having a strength that is to complete you? If you look at the gifts and the strengths of your wife in pure utilitarian fashion, well, she just does this well, this well, and this well. Or if you see it in simply domestic terms, you're missing the profound nature of what a woman is. In terms of the completion of all of life, we're called to do life together. Not she's got her things, I got my things. No, you minister together, you serve together, you love together, you suffer together, you raise children together. There is to be an intermingling of life that's profound. Not simply designation of areas to care for. I, I would encourage husbands to ask your wives, do you sense my great need for you? And if not, why not? Do you see your value. I mean, they're sitting right next to you. you. You can ask them, in what ways can I communicate that more effectively? So you see that marriage is to be, this is something you have to talk about. Uh, you, you, this isn't going to just come up in casual conversation as you're driving down the road to the gas station. We have to be intentional. To, do you sense that I could not do life apart from you? Uh, there's, a, there's a companionship has that equality to it, but also, it also embraces differences. You know, th there are divinely appointed differences between men and women that God has fashioned to not bring contention to marriage, but completion. 
I didn't get this early in marriage. I didn't understand it. The, the differences for, for Carol and I were, were initially significant to me. I hadn't been raised. You know, I had a sister, but she was five years younger than me, and I was out of the house before she even hit teens. So I didn't understand. So when I got married, uh, the differences were front and center on simple things like uh, toiletries. I'll just start with that. Um, I, I saw life more minimalistically. A can of deodorant and a comb. That's all I needed. Carol, I think I may have referred to this a few years back, but she had more of a, uh, well, I just call it like a beauty box. It was a box and it had all kinds of stuff in there that I didn't know, I didn't know were necessary. There were fluids, there were things in there. There were products that she used that things were included in there that I would normally eat. You know, there were shampoos, eucalyptus leave infused French silk water. I didn't know what half those things were. And I, I was trying to be a good steward. You could buy a, a five-gallon tub of shampoo, had an expiration date of 2048. I thought that would be fine for us forever, but that wasn't the, Or my bed. I, I had a bed. We got married. My bed was on the floor. It was on the floor because that way you wouldn't fall far. Those were part of my darker days, if you know what I'm saying. And she thought, no, we needed a frame. And then with a frame, you have a skirt. And then with the skirt, you have, a, you have pillows. We had eight pillows. On I said, we only have two heads. And she said, we need eight pillows. You take them off at night, you put them on in the morning. I said, why do we need all the pillows? She said, well, it's for decoration. I said, for who? Who's in the room? It's you and me. I mean, we don't need all those pillows. But those, those silly differences blinded me to see the more glorious differences between us. I, I'm more clinical. I'm more organizational. She, she's more emotional. She brought a wisdom to me I didn't have. You know, a, a sense of people and situations and approaches to life I just didn't have. There, there was a wisdom. I, I'm convinced, and I've said this before, I'm employed right now because of Carol. You know, when I retire, you're going to say, we're going to miss your wife's ministry. That's what you're going to say to me. But there was a wisdom that I didn't have, an emotional sensitivity, a nuance, an ability to say things. But, but there's more than that. She's bold in evangelism. You know, she, she, I may have read more theological information than she has. But she's bolder than I am. So she always thinks, well, I'm just going to talk to them and bring them to you and you can answer their questions. Uh, th th there's a part counterpart to it. You see, that there's the differences that we're adding to the union. Differences that could be annoying to each of us as we began to see them differently, they made the union stronger. And so when you look at marriage, it's for companionship, that God has made them male and female, equal and yet different for purposes of unity and joy. This might be a point of repentance. If the differences are always points of contention, how can you see these things as points of completion? I need these things. Do you give word to that? So the first thing we see is that marriage is for companionship, a true oneness. But secondly, marriage is to be celebrated. Uh, look with me at 23. At 23, he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So here you have God, like the father, walking the bride down the aisle to the husband. You have God bringing the woman to the man. God built her, fashioned her, 
and now brings her to the man. And notice the response. The first human words recorded are poetry. This at last. I don't know how long he waited. I don't know how long he pined away for one like him. But when he saw her, he saw that she was not like anything else in creation. That she was made for him and he for her. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. That idea of rib. There is an equality there. There is a sameness. There is an intimate union. She is made like me. She has the same DNA. We are together. You see this idea of, of taken from me and, and for me. She shall be called woman. It's a beautiful picture when he says, because she was taken out of me. Her name, or I should say his name, is embedded in her name. That's why women take the men's name traditionally. In Hebrew, man, ish, woman, isha. His name is embedded in her name. It's showing this dynamic union that God is intending for a husband and wife to be. An intimacy between the two. That's why he celebrates. He's excited. That's why we ought to celebrate our marriages. When Carol and I celebrated 36 years last December, I, I wrote down... It was easy to do. I wrote down 36 reasons why I'm so thankful God brought her to me. And I went through at dinner just each reason. This is why I'm so thankful to God for you. We want to celebrate what we have in marriage. I know that life gets complicated. It gets confusing. It gets busy. These things do not come to the fore of our conversation. That's why we come every Sunday, to be reminded of these more essential things. Uh, to what degree do you speak to the grace that you, that you have in your spouse? How often do you speak, not just thanking them for the tasks that each other does for the other, but, but just the uniqueness of what the man or the woman brings to the marital union. To what degree do you give word to it? It really can be a basis of prayer for you as well. I know many marriages here struggle to pray together. Uh, but, but when you begin to think about all that God has given to you in the other, that can become a point of prayer. God, thank you for so-and-so for this gift. It can begin to fuel prayer, to encourage, to speak, even in intimate ways. Sometimes I used to, earlier on, would send Carol little clips from the Song of Solomon. I was hoping the kids would never read her text, but, but just send her little lines from the Song of Solomon j just to celebrate who she is and she to me. It, marriage is to be celebrated. It's hard to be married. Even in the challenge, we need to celebrate what we have, even in the struggle. But third, you see that marriage is to be exclusive. Look with me at 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, you notice a change in the tenor of the Scripture, therefore. We know, we know Adam's not speaking right now, right? Because he wouldn't be he didn't have a father and mother, so he couldn't leave a father and mother if he has not. So, so we don't know. These are God's words, according to Matthew 
uh, chapter 19, maybe Ma- Moses, the narrator, writes them down. But, but you see it as a summary of the marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they'll become one flesh. To become one flesh. It's incredible. Think about this idea of being one flesh. This isn't two individual lives in one home. It's not what I'm speaking about. I'm saying it's one heart in two different individuals. There's shared goals, there's shared visions, both body and spirit. Obviously, it applies to our sexuality and our our sexual intimacy. That's clear and front and center in the text, that the male and the female, they're to be intimate with one another. They're naked, unashamed. There's an intimacy. You know, God has created us with sexuality. For the purposes, not simply of procreation, not for the prevention of sin alone, but for our own intimacy and joy. God has created the differences in sexuality. I know homosexuality and transgenderism are huge talking points in the last couple decades. But you see, male-female are creational, and they're biological. So all the children being born right now, they're still either... Chromosomally male and female. That's all we get. You don't get a third one. You don't get a fourth one. We can change laws, but you can't change the nature of this being produced. God has done this so that we would be one, and that would be expressed through our sexuality. But not just sexuality. Also through our spirituality and our emotional connectedness. And you see that this oneness comes by leaving and cleaving. This idea of leaving, departing, loosening. You kind of see it as, as when the man or the father walks the daughter down the aisle and, and, and he's walking her to forge a new covenant with a family where the relationships are different. So she has to leave those allegiances. They change. She doesn't stop being a daughter, doesn't stop being a child of the parents, but they change because she has to establish, she has to hold fast now to this one with whom she's making a covenant. Holding fast means to like be glued together. This is why infidelity is so painful. It's ripping apart. So you see this exclusive nature, this male and female he created them to be. To what degree do you see a oneness in your marriage? When you think, not just sexuality, but emotional oneness, you know, psychological oneness, that companionship idea, spiritual oneness. To what degree do you seek the spiritual good of your spouse? How much effort do you make to, to cultivate a greater love for Christ in your spouse? Men, Ephesians says, wash your wives in the word. To what degree, what's that even mean? Well, it, Carol and I have never had devotions together. I know many of you do. That's great. We could never make it work to study the same thing at the same time so we could talk. But we do talk about things of the faith all the time, trying to encourage one another. If we hit a tough patch in finances or in in our own conflict with one another, we, we, we try to turn to the word to say, God, lead us out of this corner so that we can encourage one another. If she's down or if I'm down, she's bringing help to me from what God has revealed to us on how to relate to him. And so to what degree do we do this for one another? This is the nature of an exclusive bond in marriage. 
is that we're, we're looking to create this oneness with each other. It doesn't happen by osmosis, and it won't just come with the years that you log in marriage together. In fact, there can, without pursuit of this, I don't think it comes. Loneliness can come. And loneliness in marriage can be very acute because there's no effort towards this growing oneness. It might be a point of repentance. It might be a point for those of you who are married that you come back together and you say, how do we achieve a greater oneness? Unity in thought and purpose in all the areas of life, whether it be uh, financial. For Carol and I, we do a budget every year. That does help bring us into some sort of financial unity. Are our goals the same? Do you feel cared for? You know, or, or emotionally? You know, am I present there for you in the midst of your struggle? Or do you feel like I'm detached and distant? You know, th these are things we have to talk about. It may be awkward if it's the, for the first time that you do that, but we need to move in these discussions because it won't just happen. You can be married for 100 years and be as far apart as you were when you got married. And, and then last, I would say this, that, that marriage has been designed as a foretaste of a glory to come. Let me explain what I mean by this. Look at 25. He says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, obviously, you know, this is physical. They were without clothes. But, but, but this idea of nakedness and, and lack of shame is so much more. Uh, to be naked and unashamed is talking about a transparency in our relationships. Uh, a, a, a sense of freedom for you to really know who I am and not fear what you may think of me or how little you'll think of me. Now, of course, there's no sin in this context, right? So there's, you know, what, what sin does is it causes us to hide and cover and, and, and we begin to do the facade. We don't want people to really know how much struggle we have in life. And you see this in this primeval innocence. You see that they didn't have sin. Can you imagine a relationship with no barriers? That, that full acceptance, no past guilt, shame that you're dealing with, no things that you're covering up, uh, no, no weaknesses that you're trying to protect so that they won't think less of you. I mean, it's exhausting trying to do all that gaming. It's just exhausting trying to be and promote somebody that, you know, it just takes a lot of work to keep the paint on the walls, keep the walls up, keep the windows. It, it's but to have this freedom is incredible. And yet, sadly, this was not the case for very long. Quickly, sin enters. And then with sin, shame, and guilt, and all the covering we do, and all the, the backtracking, excuse-making we do, and, and then quickly, this innocence was lost. And, and creation was turned on its head, and so was marriage. So why did Moses write it? If we can't get back to this primal innocence, why did he write it? Is he teasing us? Like, oh, this is what you could have had. No, I, I think he was showing us this is what God designed. This is what it was. And this is still what it's going to be. In other words, this is an incredible truth here. I think, I think marriage is a paradigm for how God wants us to relate to him. That perfect marriage is what he wants with us. I, I say that because when you look across the whole, the whole 
revelation of God in Scripture. He keeps using marriage as a conduit to see how he wants to relate to us. So, for example, the creational story. These beginning chapters in Genesis, they're all kind of focused through the lens of a marriage. You have the creation of the world, you have the making of man and woman, they're put in the garden, and they're relating to God. This is a picture of what God wants with us. This, this intimate, joyful, transparent, life-giving, life-knowing union. That's what God wants with us. And he pictures it for us. He says it's to take place in a marriage. This is a foretaste of it. But, but, but think about it. So, so creation is put through the lens of a marriage. But then you have the fall in chapter 3, and you have this, this brokenness and the hiding between the man and the woman. This is what we do with God. This is what sin has done to our relationship with God. There's a brokenness. There's a distance from God. There's a, there's a shame. There's a running away or an anger at God or a fear of God. And, and the nature, you know, what Moses is explaining as to why we have the problems we do, it's put through the context of a marriage. The sin was in the context of a marriage. They sinned against God, they sinned against each other. So God's explaining. The reason our relationship with God is as it is, is because of sin. He doesn't want that. But, but then you trace out through the whole Old Testament, and God continues to call himself a husband, particularly in the book of Hosea. God is a husband to a wayward wife. That's what we are. We're like the wayward one running from God, wanting to find our own pleasure in the things of this world rather than the maker of the world, and, and, and our relationship is broken and reflective of that. But then God is that faithful groom. He pursues the wayward wife, and so the whole story of redemption is set in the context again of what? A marriage. I mean, when you think about Jesus Christ in the church, Paul explains this as a marriage. Listen, in Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. So Paul's taking the institution of marriage, and he says it's a paradigm. It's pointing to Christ in the church, that God is reconciling all things to himself, and he wants to renew, to restore us to being children of God, delivered through Christ's death on the cross to bring forgiveness of sin, to bring reconciliation of soul, so that we would be united with God again, just back like it was in the garden. So the whole creational mandate is put through this idea of a marriage. And it doesn't stop there, because then the consummation of all things, when all things are put in subordination to Christ, that final day when he comes back and he brings judgment to the wicked, he brings deliverance to the righteous, those righteous in Christ by faith, it's in the context of what? In Revelation 19, in Revelation 22, another wedding, a wedding feast. Again, God uses marriage to restore. I'm just going through this whole biblical theological understanding of marriage so you can see that marriage was always temporal. It points to something eternal. So, so for those of us who are married, uh, what I'm challenging you is to consider is that your marriage is to be a window to God. The way we serve, the way we love, the way we reconcile, it's to picture God's love for us. 
the foretaste of intimacy that we have, the enjoyment, those pockets of enjoyment, maybe in a troubled marriage. Maybe you only have a few high points in your marriage. It's surrounded more by struggle and trial. That's drawing us to see that, no, 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 our marriages are preparing us for a better marriage. Our, our marriages, even troubled marriages, are preparing for us to be one with God on that final day, that wedding feast that you see at the end of Revelation. But even for those of you who are widowed or those of you who are, are single or you want to be married, your identity is not anchored in marriage in this age. Your identity is anchored in a marriage to come. You're still an image bearer of God. You don't have to be married to worship God, enjoy God. It is the norm for most, but not demanded of all. Jesus wasn't obviously married. Paul, probably not. You're an image bearer of God. You're living in dependence on God. You're serving him. You can bring great glory. In fact, Paul says it's good for those who are called to be single to remain single. It's good. And he uses the same word for God saying it's good when he creates all of creation. So, so you see that, that all of marriage, even those who are not married, there's, there is to be one eye kind of looking for the final day. He's preparing us to see himself. So when you look at Christ, he comes in the flesh like us. He's bone of bone. He's flesh of flesh with us. And now we are taken out of him. It's as if he gives life to us. And our life is now bound up in him. Our name is embedded in his name. He is now the one that we look to. He, <clears throat> if you can picture the perfect, the quintessential groom, or, he is that. And so all of this time on this earth as we work together and live together, it's pointing and preparing us for that final day. All of Scripture keeps calling us to don't look just at next week, but look at the day. This age is going to be filled and changed and completed on that age. Let's ask God for grace here. I know that many of you are probably doing back handsprings. How do I help my marriage? Why can't I have this? Let, let's ask God. God who said, let there be light. There was light. It, there wasn't a delay, a flickering of power, and then boom, all power. It, let there be light. He speaks, and it is created. Let's ask God for help. All of us need it. I don't care where you stand. Even though I may feel like my marriage may be flourishing, there are still things that he is doing in and through me and, and Carol that need to take place. God, have mercy on us. Be encouraged by God, that, that God is the author of this. He'll bring it to completion. He'll bring you to completion. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.